Guys, it is 4th of July weekend, and on one hand, we are really glad to live in the time and the place we do. Am I good? Yeah. Um, what nation has been as singularly blessed as the United States? If you think of the annals of history, materially, morally, spiritually, the United States has been and was meant to be, by many, of course, who started the nation, a city on a hill, a shining place that the gospel would be proclaimed freely, that folks could come and hear about Christ. And, you know, historically that's been generally true. And God has used the United States just mightily in shaping world history. And as I'm thinking about that and talking about that right now, I'm thinking primarily past tense. Because, guys, we are a train wreck morally and spiritually in this country at this time. And it's not only Dalton's bus ride, no transmission going backwards down a hill. I, I feel, in my image, we're in a train with no brakes going downhill very, very fast, very precipitously. These are challenging times at best. Whether you're thinking of care for the weakest among us, thinking of abortion, whether you think of simply valuing what God values in the sense of relationships, family, marriages. Um, I don't know if you're aware, in California there's a bill in the Senate. In fact, I think it passed uh, maybe a House uh, committee. There's a bill in California right now that would essentially end a Christian secondary education in that state. Because as the law is written, it doesn't make Christian colleges illegal but it gives individuals in those institutions, faculty or students, legal permission to sue them for any form of discrimination they may feel they face there. Can you imagine, once the doors are open on that, you couldn't afford to operate as an institution. The exceptions are the institutions that specifically educate clergy, but it's even unclear if they are exempt from this as well. So, guys, uh, the city on a hill, we've gone down the hill, backwards or forwards. We are in terrible, terrible straits. It would be hard to overemphasize the heights from which we have fallen. It's a tough, tough time in the United States. We were talking to Larry and Trish Stewart's family at lunch, seems like about a month ago, and Larry was a career military guy, so he and his family traveled around the world. And so you can imagine, you travel to Japan, it's a totally different culture. They lived there for a few years. Europe, Germany, you don't speak the language, different culture, different history, etc. So we're talking about that. And, and this, this theme of culture shock came up. And, and of course, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, you go to Japan, what a culture shock. They said, no, the culture shock is when we come home. It's how much has changed here. In the United States, not out there. You expect things to be different in a foreign country, but not so much here. We are seeing seismic changes going on in this country, and we have arguably maybe from Roe v. Wade forward. Uh, but, but this train wreck going downhill, it's increasing speed dramatically. And so the question this morning, is that encouraging, by the way? Are we all off on the same page? We, we, are, we are singularly blessed to live where and when we do, for sure. 
But with that, we as the church, we as followers of Jesus Christ, are facing challenges today that we would be negligent to remain blind to. So we've got to open our eyes and say, Lord, what do we do in the time and the place you've put us? Recognizing these massive changes in which the faith, arguably the Christian faith that built this nation, is now the red-headed stepchild that the rest of the country says, we don't want you around. You are, you are the other. You are the outsider. You don't belong here. Things have radically changed. So one, we simply just need to be aware of that. We need to make sure that we're dealing with life as it is. If we're not doing that, we're in la-la land. We need to check in. Life as it is. How do we live when the foundations that have been dependable and historically consistent in this country, how do we go forward when those foundations have crumbled beneath our feet as they have and as they are? And how do we think and interact when the rules of engagement in all of life are being changed and we have become the other and the outsider when the historic moral foundations of this culture are destroyed? What do the righteous do? What do the righteous do? What do you and I do today? In a minute, we're going to look at Psalm 11 because what the righteous do is the theme of that psalm. And in that psalm, David faced similar challenges that you and I do and the church faces today. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that question is raised. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The way the, as we'll see, the way the question is framed means you can't do anything to which David disagrees. But recognizing the time and the place we live, how do we engage? How does the church, how do we as followers of Jesus go forward? This is going to be the first of a six-week series. It'll go right through the end of the summer in which we're going to talk about uh, hot topic issues going on in the country uh, today. So uh, today we'll, we'll sort of address the issue. We'll talk about it generally. Uh, week two, political hopes and biblical expectations. By the way, I think all this should be on your study sheet. Week three, titles, just titles here this morning. Man created God, LGBT, and the image of God. I'll just mention on that. We, we want to ultimately help others see the attempt to redefine ourselves is in fact an ultimate attempt to redefine God. Therefore, it's impossible. It's unholy, it's unhelpful, it's unloving to propagate that. Week four, are we really friends? Strategic use of social media using that technology in a way that's redemptive, not falling into a hole wastefully. Week five, who is my neighbor? Talking about law, love, illegal immigrants, and now international refugees. And week six, committed, loyal love in an unfriended world. And towards the end of that, we'll be talking about covenant membership in Lion and Lamb. We will be instituting formal uh, membership in Lion and Lamb Church in September, the first Sunday school session. This fall we'll be addressing that in the last message of this series. We'll be talking some of that in the larger context of what does it look like in this world in which friends are people you don't know online. What does friendship mean? What is, what is God's loyal love to us and through us look like? That'll be the last of that six-week messages. Let me give a caveat here on the front end too. And it's this. Uh, I'm responsible for the content of these messages. The elders know the topics I'm teaching on. They've agreed with the series, but they're not, they haven't signed off on everything Mike says. So if you don't agree, let Mike know. Don't complain to one of the elders. You're free. 
you're free to talk to them about concerns. But if you have questions or gripes, or if you say, man, you, you're out of line, let me know. I'm responsible for the content of these messages. And if we disagree, I trust we'll be humble and charitable about it all. I'll also tell you that the genesis, the primary genesis for this message came from social media interaction I was seeing between Christians on issues of the day, specifically presidential elections. The disagreements were so sharp, tended to be uncharitable and unchristlike, and it wasn't just Christians out there, it was Christians in this church. And I thought, wow, we really need to be speaking to the issues that are going on today. So we'll talk about that a little bit more about that when we talk about politics. So we may disagree with each other, and if we do, that's fine. We want to be clear, though, and my hope on the whole series is this, that these large topics that are affecting not only us individually and our families and our lives, but these topics that are ruling the culture you and I are interacting with, we're open to those, we're aware of what's going on, and we're thinking critically and biblically about them. So that as much as it can be, our interaction around these issues is redemptive. It's Christ-honoring, it's God-honoring, it's gospel-centered, it's biblically informed. Hopefully that's where we're going. Uh, the fact that the culture has shifted under our feet, that there's been an earthquake, it's been going on for a long while, and that the foundations have shifted, has one, to me, really helpful benefit, and it's this. It reminds us that you and I, citizens of the United States of America, are in fact, ultimately, strangers in a strange land. We are pilgrims on our way to our home. We are ambassadors of heaven temporarily on assignment to earth. That's our role. So that whatever country is our home, whatever nationality we hail from, ultimately we need to recognize we are citizens, Philippians, Paul says in Philippians, of heaven first and primarily. And we need to make sure that we're thinking, acting, speaking redemptively as citizens of heaven on temporary assignment on earth. Guys, at the end of the day, God's program is bigger than this country. I've said before, God is not an American. God's program is bigger than this country. And it's bigger than this current generation. Guys, if the judgments of heaven came righteously on the earth right now and we all suffered terribly, God's program is bigger than our generation. And it's bigger than the particular experience you and I have in our short journey on the earth. We are part of a bigger, grander, potentially more frightening, and certainly more glorious adventure than it would be our desire to choose. Uh, we're not the first either, by the way. We're just in a long line, right? Of people that have, have uh, borne God's name in difficult circumstances, right? So you think about uh, Joseph in Egypt, or you think about Daniel and friends in Babylon, or just think of the early church. Read the epistles. The early church in life under Roman rule was no piece of cake. We're not the first to face challenging situations. One example, I'll just briefly mention this going forward, but a, one of the markers of the, the seismic change under our feet, that you would have to define marriages between a man and a woman that we would be talking about this as an issue. It starts off as ludicrous on one hand. But California in 2008 passed 52 to 48 Proposition 8, marriages between a man, singular, and a woman, singular. 
Passed 5248, was never enacted because it was challenged immediately in court. Never, it was struck down at every opportunity. But guys, just on the statistics, six years later, 2014, in California, over 60% of people supported same-sex marriage. When you talk about the train going downhill, it's picking up speed and there are no brakes in sight. That's just one of the, the bellwethers, one of the measures by which we say, man, we have really changed, and it's going on very quickly. So what do we, what do the righteous do when it looks like the foundations around us have crumbled? If you've got a Bible, feel free to turn to Psalm 11. This is a Psalm of David. We're not sure exactly what's going on, what set of circumstances David was specifically referring to here. But there's trouble going on, and there's a, a group of naysayers who are saying to David, uh, you can't remain where you're at. You've got to get up and flee your position, live to fight another day. But you can't stand here now. You've got to get up and get out. There's, the deck is stacked against you. And it's David's view of this encouragement for him to flee that we're really looking at this morning. The second half of the psalm will deal with how he responds to all that. But This is Psalm 11. I'm reading from the ESV. David starts this way, verses 1-3. through three, In the Lord I take refuge. That's his starting point. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? Now what follows is what the naysayers are telling David. I'm taking refuge in the Lord. How can you tell me this advice? Flee like a bird to your mountain. Run away as fast as you can. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They're saying, David, you've got to get up and you've got to leave. And you need to do so now. The foundations are gone. You can't stand. Take off. Get out of here. Look at verse 1 for just a second. It's interesting that before we even hear what this, the challenge in the situation is, David starts the psalm by saying, In the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. My starting place when I hear this advice is I'm trusting in the Lord. The Lord is the place I live. God and my relationship with Him, the knowledge of God in His Word, that's where I take refuge. That's my resting place. That's my starting point. So when I hear this advice to get up and flee, I'm listening to that advice through the lens, through the filter of my implicit trust in God. That God is the one in control of my life, not others. I start in that position of rest. I'm at rest I'm entrusting myself to God. Guys, if we are primarily being informed today by Facebook or social media or the news accounts or any of the other ways, any of the other places we can gather our information, if that's the place we start, we're in trouble. In fact, if you start there, I would tell you today, I have no hope going forward. And I have loads of hope. But it's not because I'm starting with the news accounts and the information I can glean from the culture. David's not starting with what other people are saying. And he makes that clear when he starts this psalm out. 
My resting place, the place I start all of this out, is saying I'm entrusting myself to the Lord. Guys, if you and I aren't doing that same thing with all the stuff coming our way, we're in trouble. We will not have a frame of reference adequate to look at what's going on around us and know how God wants us to respond. And you don't just get there by accident. If we're not meeting with the Lord, if we're not in His Word, comforted, challenged, guided by that, you don't have a means by which you can start resting in the Lord and trusting yourself to the Lord and His truth. So David says, I'm starting, when I hear this, my starting point is my rest, my confidence in God, His Word, His truth, His power, His rule over my life. And then I take this in. That's my starting point. That's my frame of reference. In the Lord I have taken refuge. Now that's his position against which he's hearing this advice. Look at verse 2. The wicked are armed. Their arrows are in their bows. Some of what they're preparing for David can be seen. Others, other things that are being prepared are in darkness. And so these guys are saying, man, the deck is stacked against you. You have no means by which you can win here, David. Verse 2. You can't win. We might say it like this in our day, in our time, in our circumstances. The courts have seized legislative powers in answer to no one. The, the benches are now enacting law by fiat. The president invokes powers he doesn't have to push his own social agendas. Major corporations are using their profits to push unholy practices. Those profits are coming from your pockets and mine, by the way. You can't spend and live in this country today without supporting major corporations that support all the things God says are contrary to His Word. You can't do it. Marriage has been trivialized. The definition of family has been violated. Facebook won't run our stories. That's the one that gets me. Facebook won't run our stories. The media doesn't tell the truth. I can't let my child use public bathroom anymore. Pro-lifers are being prosecuted while Planned Parenthood continues killing unborn children. The options in our presidential elections are depressing. Should we go on? We could. But that's enough, right? So that David's hearing that kind of a list, a litany of all the reasons why you should just give up, man, and go home. And so we might say, so we should turn our backs on the culture. Monasticism is sounding pretty appealing right now, right? We'll go off into the desert. We'll create our own little cell. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll survive for another day. Or what can we do anyway? Or the foundations of culture, law, politics, public opinion. Every cultural means to stand for what is good and right have failed. There's nothing left for us to do. Give up. Fly like a bird to your mountain. Now in this, in David's scenario and in ours today, uh, I know that a few of us, a, a minority of us, when we hear stuff like this, we just get belligerent. We're ready for the fight. You know, most people respond, we fight or we flight. We flee, right? Some of us are the belligerents. But more often than not, especially if you just online, when Christians get belligerent, it's just ugly. It's not better than somebody else's belligerence. We don't, that's not where we want to go. And that's not really what we're talking about this morning. Because most of us are the flee. We're the flight group. And that's what we're speaking to. And that's what David faced here. Most of us are tempted to despair and a sense of hopelessness, and that's what's going on. Even if these guys are David's friends, and they may not be, even if they are, 
the effect of what they're telling him is despair and hopelessness. They're saying God doesn't have a plan for you in this scenario. Give up. John, Richard John Newhouse said this, Well, despair is still a sin and hope is a virtue. Guys, despair is a sin. I was talking to one of my son-in-laws the other day. He's talking about my granddaughter, his daughter, and the tendency to anxiety and fear. And he said, you know, I finally said, your fear, that anxiety, that's sin. Call it what it is so you can see how serious it is. Well, despair, hopelessness is a sin because it minimizes who God is and what He has promised. Hopelessness, that's what David is combating. That's what we are to today as well. The other one, this is from the Lord of the Rings. Think about John Ronald Ruel Tolkien and his virtuoso, the Fellowship of the Ring. Tolkien was a guy who not only had historic Christian, in his case, Catholic upbringing and sort of a moral sense of things. He's also a guy like C.S. Lewis's friend that lived through World War I and World War II. These weren't guys writing from crystal cathedrals, academic palaces. They had lived in the nitty-gritty trenches of life. They had a big picture view of life. And in his book, Tolkien sets this setting where Frodo, kind of like Dorothy from Kansas, the meek and humble. Frodo, who just wants a comfortable hole in the ground, three square meals a day, maybe four or five. You know, a full larder, comfort loving like most of us, right? And in his lap has landed the ring of power, and now he's on this quest. He's got to take it back to the Mount of Doom where it was made so it can be destroyed. Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Why me? Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. You you and I might say that today. Why me? Why now? Why couldn't I have lived in the 1950s? Or the 1860s? Or whatever. This is what Gandalf responds. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given us. That's not despair. That's, Lord, in my situation, in these circumstances, what's required of me and what is going forward look like. Now, Things are bleak here, guys, and I don't want to underestimate how bleak I think things spiritually and morally in this country are. In fact, I I think we've passed some kind of milestone that's allowed this rapid, rapid spiritual and moral decline. And I'm not saying, by the way, that we can't see. My prayer personally, because this is what Kathy and I pray, Lord, would you give us another season of repentance and renewal like you did Israel under good King Josiah, the last good king Israel had? There was a reformation, and that's our prayer. And I don't know if we're past that point or not, but that's what we're praying. That's what we're asking. When we're looking around and we see things as they are, it it can incite a sense of despair or a temptation to say, I want to take those guys' advice. I want to get away to that mountain. I want to run. And there were certainly times in David's life, read the Psalms and you read David's story. And guys, he he experienced not only great highs, but lots and lots of challenges and lows. And this is what he said in Psalm 55, different set of circumstances, the front end of that. He wrote, Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away 
and be at rest. See, in Psalm 55, he's saying to his own soul, if I had a magic wand, if I could just have my will in the moment, I would put wings on my back and I'd fly away. And I'd get out of the trouble. Could David empathize with the challenge to just say, let's just cut our losses? Let's... Absolutely. But in Psalm 11, he knows that's not an option. And guys, I don't believe disengagement for the church is an option for you and I today either. Psalm 11, there's a temptation put forward by others for David to despair and leave the field of battle, and that's exactly what he's not willing to do. Listen to this, by the way. From, uh, this is from A Time for Action by Raphael Cruz, Ted Cruz's father. I've just cracked it. I've loved everything I've read so far. But listen, he's got a quote from Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II. And, and here was another guy that faced a, a setting uh, not too dissimilar for ours. He saw Germany crumbling beneath his feet in his day and in his time. And guys like lots of others, he put the wings of a bird on his back and he flew. And you know where he flew? Flew right here to the United States. And listen to what he said. He wrote to uh, Niebuhr. I can't remember his first name. Anyway, he wrote this. He said, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through the difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot... Excuse me. He says, but I cannot make that choice from security. So he went back. He went back. He spent the rest of his life, very short life, by the way, in Germany, he was hung in the final days of the war. Uh, Hitler said, you make sure you hang those guys before uh, we, we succumb. And I think it was four days before the liberation. Uh, Bonhoeffer died in Germany. He was hung. So, he got it. I, I, I'm not free to flee. I've come and I realized my mistake. I've got to go back, which he did. On what basis did David face the future or, or him either? What Bonhoeffer faced the future? What kind of confidence lends itself to going back as he did? And that puts us in the second half of Psalm 11. So David starts, I'm trusting in the Lord. Then here's the counsel. Get out. You can't do anything about it. And then this is what he says. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. David, that's David's prayer. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. So guys, looking forward, David says this. I'm not taking that advice because I know something. I know that God is firmly in control. These guys aren't in control. They're not running my universe. God is in control. God sits in heaven. He's in the throne in heaven. You know, here's everything going on the earth. And David says, God's up here. He's above it all. And none of this affects him. 
None of this changes God. God is still firmly in control. In fact, if you look at Ephesians 1.11, when we think things are as bad as they could ever be, if you were a German or a Jew living through or living in Germany during World War II or in that region, you might say, could, could this get any worse? You know, how do I view this? Ephesians 1.11 says this, In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works, and this is the key, the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God is working all things that are occurring on this earth, permission, omission, commission, all things on this earth are working together for God's own purposes. God has not lost control here or any place else. God is firmly in control. He sits enthroned in heaven today as He always has and always will. Guys, if you could take the sum total of the energy and the power on the earth, technological, human armaments of war, if you could take them all together and somehow make one great push or explosion, it would not make the faintest dent in the providence and the sovereign rule of God on this earth. No one can adversely affect God's purposes for this will. By gosh and by golly, one way or another, in righteousness and wickedness, people ultimately end up being a part of God's purposes and will. That's true today. God is firmly in control. He's not wringing His hands. He, he, there's no emergency in heaven. God, did you see what they just did? It's all being worked together for God's purposes Guys, another exciting thing for me out of this is verse 5. God is testing the righteous. God is testing the righteous. You and I are not cursed to live in a time when it looks like the nation is going downhill fast. We are not cur- this is not a curse to be born. This is a trial to be faced. It's a test to pass. It's, it's to call us up. And ultimately, really, it's not about being the best American we can be. It's about seeing the life of Christ manifest more fully in us and through us. So in these tough, challenging times, the righteous are being tested in a good way. We're being refined. And only the life of Christ in us will do. The old sinful selves of us, They can only produce their worst, but no, the refining process, God's producing more of the life of Christ in us. We Christians are going to be tempted to despair, friends, in coming days. However, whenever God works and however this thing shakes out as we go forward, Christians are going to be tempted to despair. We must respond in faith and trust. We are going to be tempted to hate. And friends, I see this no more regularly than in the political arena. Christians will commit verbal murder against another Christian if there's a political race on the line, which is absolutely spiritual madness. We're going to be tempted to hate. We must respond with the love God displayed in Christ. That's our call. We're going to be tempted to say, I give up. And that little theologian Samuel, we need to respond with his words, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. What do you have for us, Lord? What's required? What does that require of me? We have the opportunity to respond as David did in faith. Check this out too. Verse 7 is where I want to land this morning. For the Lord is righteous and He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. 
To behold the face of God is to be able to stand in His presence. The prayer number six is that God's countenance would shine on us. His favor, His benevolence on us. And towards that end, David says God's righteous and He loves righteous deeds. Do you want to be able to please God today? God loves righteous deeds. This isn't just what we say. This is what we do. It's our actions. God loves righteous deeds. So in David's life, in our life today, our job is to continue to practice righteous deeds. To be engaged redemptively. We're called to do and to act redemptively in our time and place. That does mean speaking. It means engaging in one way or another. It means voting. It means remaining engaged in righteous deeds. Going back to Bonhoeffer for just a minute. Bonhoeffer said this, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. You know, a lot of the German church was absolutely silent during World War II. They knew what was going on. And they didn't lift a finger to hell. Many. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. And not to act is to act. We're weighing in on one side or the other. We're weighing in by our silence, if by nothing else. Another great quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. Now these are great quotes, and these are great guys, but you know, that theology is not original to them. Because James 4.17 says, whoever knows to do right and does not do it, to him it is sin. That's all we're saying here. God's called us to remain engaged in righteous deeds in our time and place. Guys, the other thing that comes up in this, we don't talk in this language much today. We live in what we call the day of grace, the age of the Spirit. Jesus, His, His finished work is done. The Spirit's given. We proclaim the Gospel. But guys, we need to remember that the Gospel, the good news, implicitly includes what we would call bad news. So you know that at the cross, Jesus dies for our sins. And then He rises from the dead. And the, so we say the cross is God's love language to us to show us God loves us. Do you know the other thing the cross says is God has judged the world and everyone in it as deficient and sinful and worthy of death. The cross is proof that God will and God must judge wickedness. The cross is the epitome of God's love and is absolutely the epitome of His necessity to judge evil and wickedness and sin. And David basically says, the wicked may last for a day, they may win in a season, but their day will be short. There's Psalm 37 brings up this same issue. Now David's looking at the wicked man and he starts by saying, don't fret because of evildoers. When you see the evil, the wicked thriving, he says, don't worry about it. Well, it looks like they're getting everything their way. Don't worry about it. Why? Psalm 37, verse 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous, gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. Why? Because he sees his day is coming. Guys, the wicked will not win ultimately. 
And all of those victories, Hitler's victory, Stalin's, Mao's, you name it, pro-aborts today, those victories, they're going to be short-lived. They're going to be short-lived. When Jesus was arrested by wicked men pursuing wicked plans, He said this, Luke twenty-two fifty-three: This is your hour and the power of darkness. The wicked right now, this is your hour, this is your time. It's an hour. It's short-lived. And you're going to crucify me, which looks really bad, but in the providence of God, Ephesians 1.11, your wickedness is going to rebound to God's glory because through that wickedness, the love of God, the redemption God's providing to man is going to be brought. The wicked don't survive long. Their day is short. Darkness and loss and defeat for the righteous may last for a time, for a dark night, for a season of the soul or an age of the world. But for those who follow a risen, death-defeating Savior, joy always comes in the morning. So guys, with all that, what do righteous deeds for us look like? So if we're with David, if we're on board, if we say, yeah, the foundations that we counted on, they're gone, are there new foundations that we can build on? And how might you and I practice righteous deeds today? I've got a few suggestions. These are on your study sheet as well. And by the way, it doesn't matter how old you are, what sphere of influence you occupy in life today, we can do, all of us can do all of these things. The first is this, it's to repent and believe the gospel. You know, a lot of people think they're on God's side and they aren't. And it always bears asking a person on what is your hope of heaven hinged. And people say, inevitably, I'm a good person, I live a good life. And then we say, you're on your way to hell, and you're not a Christian, if that's your definition. You must repent and believe the gospel. And that means we fess up to God. We are sinners. We deserve your holy wrath and judgment against us. We are not what we should be. And we, with open arms, freely accept, bringing nothing but our need, we freely accept, the salvation and the forgiveness bought by Jesus in His death on the cross. That's where we start. There's no righteous deeds if you're not righteous. And the only righteousness any of us have is in Christ. So we start by making clear we have the righteousness of God in Christ because we've repented of our rebellion against God and embraced His forgiveness and salvation through the Gospel. The second thing, guys, is this. It's to pray... I know this sounds simple, but guys, uh, the church, some people blame the, the fall of the nation on the church. I don't really buy that. The church is not what the church should be, and I think that's a separate issue. I don't think the church has caused the nation's fall. We should be brighter lights, absolutely. We should be saltier. We should retard the process of this degradation for sure. That the church is, is, we have our faults, absolutely. But guys, I've read the end of the Bible, and I'll bet some of you have too. And God wins, and it's not because we did such a good job. So, the, we have our issues. And I'd say one of the issues is this, we don't pray. And friends, Christians who don't pray, we're proud and we're dull. Because we don't get it if we're not praying. We're called to pray. We're called prayer is first and foremost is just fellowship with God. If we as Christians aren't regularly praying, we are telling God, you're not worth my time. Thank you very much. I'll see you in heaven in 20 or 30 or 40 years. We'll make up. We'll re, re, relive old stories. 
We're praying. One, because we're drawing near to God in fellowship, and two, because we see what's going on around us. You know, some Christians are quick to call the judgment of God down on the United States of America, for which God would be right if He did, right? We're a sinful nation. We say with Isaiah, I'm a sinful man among a people. Sinful. Sinful lips, sinful actions. Absolutely. That would be appropriate. But guys, do we realize that when we have that attitude, we're talking about our children and our grandchildren and our friends and people who don't know Christ yet? Do we realize that? We should be praying. We should be giving ourselves to prayer. We need to encourage ourselves in the Scriptures. Again, David could not have had the frame of reference he had unless he'd known God through His Word. You remember the Jewish kings were supposed to record by their own hand the law of Moses. David knew God's Word. That's why he could be encouraged. You and I, again, you cannot be encouraged the way God wants you to be if you're not regularly in His Word. I'm finishing up uh, Jeremiah right now, the the weeping prophet. And guys, I am so jazzed and so encouraged because I find Jeremiah so encouraging. A guy facing times like we did. Right? That's what he... Great relationship with God. God continues to use him and to speak through him. We need the encouragement of the Scriptures. Guys, we also need the encouragement of each other. I know all this is... Right? This is the ABCs of the faith, but many of us are not living these. We're not practicing these. Hebrews 10.25 says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but continue to meet with one another day after day to encourage each other. We need encouragement, not just here on Sunday morning, women's groups, men's groups, accountability, small group. We need that because none of us are sufficient to ourselves. We need the encouragement of other believers in our life, and they need it from ours. Those four things right there, that's a foundation on which you can interact in the culture as it is today. That's not the old foundation. That's the foundation that's always there for all of us. We can work from that foundation in our day and in our time. From that, then, let's make sure that we're staying engaged in the social and political process. We still need to be engaged in this world. We still need to be salt and light. We cannot afford, and the nation cannot afford, that we would disengage. And towards that end, we need to be bearing witness to God, to the truths of the Scripture, primarily to the Gospel. But guys, you understand the Gospel affects every area of life. When we say, we want to make sure that the church is known first and foremost for the Gospel, that God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting our sins against us, right? But through Christ, He's addressing our need. But that message, it affects everything. It affects every area of life. So as the church, we need to be faithful witnesses in the time we have continuing to tell the world, guys, that's the wrong way. This is the right way. You know, for years, in fact, it's Jeremiah that a group in Topeka quotes liberally, do not pray for this people. God told Jeremiah, because they're going down, I'm judging them. Do you know, even in that context, in the third year before uh, 586 B.C. when Zedekiah in the third to last year of his reign, God told him privately, if you'll repent, I'll spare you in the city. Right before the end, three years before the destruction of Jerusalem, God says again, after all that, He says, if you'll repent, I'll spare you and your family and the city. And they wouldn't. But the offer was still there that late in the game. The church needs to continue to put forth the message of the Gospel in all its permutations and the way it affects all of life. Let me close with this quote. It's a longer quote, but I'm over my time. 
Os Guinness wrote this in the call, Such are the people who will always be found in the gap. They are the ones prepared for such a time as this. People after God's own heart, they are ready to read the signs of the times and serve His purpose in their generation. And to that we should all say, Amen. We mean to serve God in our generation. God, would You help us to repent of our waywardness, of small-minded thinking. Would You help us to rise to the occasion, Lord, and the purpose You have called each one of us here to fulfill in our day and in our time to honor Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.